The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. Monday, June 20th is World Refugee Day. The UN Human Rights Commissioner on Refugee or the UN Refugee Agency states that we are approaching over 100 million displaced peoples worldwide. So welcoming refugees is very, very, very critical. Well, my guest today on Humans on Rights is the Executive Director of IRCOM. Now, IRCOM stands for the Immigration and Refugee Community Organizations of Manitoba. And my guest is the executive director. Her name is Shireen Denato. Now, Shireen has a great background in working in welcoming new community members to the city of Winnipeg, but she's got also a very interesting educational background in that she has had a bachelor of, I guess I'm going to call it biology and psychology. She'll correct me if I'm wrong, from McMaster University. And she followed that up with a master's of social degree at Carleton University. She is very passionate about working in the sector that welcomes newcomers to Canada because in her opinion, and I agree with her, we're gonna draw this out, is they bring incredible talents, knowledge, and skills to our diverse country. So Shireen Denato, welcome to Humans on Rights. Thank you so much, Stuart. I'm really pleased to be here. I know we talked a bit about a land acknowledgement. If you'd like to make a land acknowledgement before we talk a little bit about uh, IRCOM and your history, please feel free. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, we, we like to acknowledge at IRCOM that the land we are on is Treaty 1 territory, and it, these are the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe, the Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and of course, the homeland of the Métis Nation. And, you know, at IRCOM, what we talk about with our families and our tenants is that the water that IRCOM uses comes from Shoal Lake First Nation uh, 40, which is an Ojibwe community that's part of Treaty 3. We also talk with our families and staff about the electricity that IRCOM uses. It comes from Treaty 5, the homeland of the Ojibwe and Swampy Cree peoples. So, you know, we really want to make those connections between the resources and the, the privileges that we have and how that is really thanks to the you know, First Nations people that, uh, that, that welcome us on this land. So before we get into, you know, why we're having this conversation, I want to just make a comment right off the top, Shireen. I always find sometimes that those of us that were, well, I'll just say privileged to be born in Canada as citizens. You know, I've gone to citizenship ceremonies. I've listened to what you've just talked about, sort of bringing new Canadians to have that understanding about where does our water come from? Where does our electricity come from? Where are we living? And I've often thought that those of us that have actually been born in Canada could use that education. We take so much of this for granted. We're not aware of it. So I'm really delighted that you shared that 
with those that will be listening to this podcast, because I do think that is really important for us to acknowledge those elements that we have taken for granted for years and years. So, so thank you so much for, for doing that. You're welcome. Now, Shireen, let's talk a little bit about you and how you've navigated yourself to be the executive director of EARCOM. You obviously studied at McMaster, you studied at Carleton. So where have you started your journey? Where did you, where were you born? Where did you live? Where did you take your undergrad or your high school education? If we can start there. Sure. So, you know, my parents immigrated from India. They came as immigrants uh, about 57 years ago now. And they landed in Montreal and they were, you know, one of the first sets of uh, Indian uh, immigrants to, to, to that part of the country or that city. And then my father was very lucky. He had an engineering background. He got a job offer at Confederation College in Northern Ontario. So I was raised in Northern Ontario. And, you know, at the time, uh, this is in the early 70s, there was a zero vacancy rate, zero percent vacancy rate. So they found an old homestead for sale for about $7,000 in the countryside. So I was actually raised in rural Northern Ontario. So it was a really interesting and unique, I think, upbringing for an immigrant kid. And yeah, in the end, I, I did my high school in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And when I graduated, we had grade 13 in those days. When I graduated, I was accepted uh, at McMaster University. And I went to the big city with three or four friends from high school and ended up sort of moving to, to Southern Ontario to stay there. Then I, of course, in the end, did my graduate work at Carleton University in Ottawa. And to be honest, I, I always, okay, I did biopsych in school. So uh, kind of a typical pathway for a lot of us, you know, sort of um, second gen uh, South Asian kids, you know, heavy emphasis on sciences, becoming doctors and you know, all of those wonderful things. But I discovered that I really had an interest and an inclination in terms of women's issues, social justice. So while I graduated with a biopsych degree, I ended up my first job out of university was at a shelter for abused women and children. And that's where I really, I really felt that social work was, was my calling, was, was, was where I wanted to, to, to be. And so that's why I did my master's in, in social work. So. Yeah, that's a little bit of a history. Yeah, no, and you did your master's at Carleton University. So before, I'm going to ask you just uh, what you did, your what your thesis was on when you did your master's, but let's just back up to Thunder Bay. So that's where you went to school, your high school. What would be one of the memories if somebody were to say, what, just think back at uh, growing up as a, would it be fair to call you at that point a resident of Canada? Would you and your family be residents? Yes, yes. By that point, our family had Canadian citizenship. Um, and to be clear, my brother and I were born here. So we were raised in an immigrant family, in an immigrant community, um, but we were born here. So Canadian citizens. Okay, yeah. No, thanks for that clarification, Shireen. But think back to Thunder Bay. Um, what, what would be one of the things that if you look back now on, on your time in Thunder Bay that sticks out as kind of a bit of a memory? I think, um, you know, growing up in rural Northern Ontario, you know, there, there's some real strengths to growing up in a, a communities, rural communities, you know, so there's a lot of sense of neighborliness. And, you know, if the neighbor's chimney catches on fire, everyone gets a phone call and we all, you know, all the parents rush off and help put out the fire. Um, there are 
the equivalent of socials, you know, community events and corn roasts and, you know, you name it. So there, there was sort of a rich rural environment and we were odd ducks at times, right? We were literally the only, one of the only immigrant, you know, sort of brown skinned immigrant family growing up in that area. You know, sometimes you felt a bit excluded, I would say, and, and different, but I think there were a lot of positives because of that warmth and that natural sense of, you know, connectivity that you see in, in rural communities. Moving into the city, which we eventually did when I was in high school, was from a teenager's perspective, probably you know, <laughs> happier. Um, Thunder Bay also, you know, there's a whole other thing happening in Thunder Bay and in many communities in Canada, which is the realities for Indigenous peoples. And one of my best friends, literally growing up, was Indigenous. Her mom would cook stew in Bannock, you know, and this this wonderful woman and family. But my friend never identified as Indigenous. There was so much, you know, and again, it's sort of just pervasive and you grow up in it. But but looking back, it's pervasive racism, anti-Indigenous racism growing up. So there's sort of different things that happen. You know, there are these different realities that happen. I would also say that my family definitely faced systemic sort of barriers uh, in different ways around employment and hiring, you know, recognition. You know, but I, I would also say that I had a marvelous group of friends growing up in Thunder Bay, right? So, so all of these things happened all at the same time, and that's this complexity of of living, I guess, in a complex society. So, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Thank you for sharing that, Shireen. You obviously are now in Winnipeg, Manitoba. What brought you to Winnipeg? So, actually, my partner he was looking for a job at a university, and it was either this or Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, so. I said, let's stay Canadian, please. And, uh, and and no offense to any Americans listening. I mean, but just, you know, of course, we're born in Canada and, uh, you know, we're really happy to move to Winnipeg. Of course, growing up in Thunder Bay, we were kind of familiar with Winnipeg. It was sort of the place to go, you know, when you're a teenager in, in Thunder Bay, you could go to the folk festival. So, yeah, I was really pleased that we could come here and and then we started our family here. So it's it's been a great place to to raise our kids. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, and I, you know, what I love about how you tie in the notion of, you know, in living in rural Ontario, as you were in Northern Ontario, you know, if something happens to a neighbor, everybody kind of gathers, everybody's there for the collective, for that community. And I think that that really does speak volumes about what you're currently involved in, in terms of welcoming sort of new immigrants, new refugees into the city of Winnipeg. So I would like to just explore, Shireen, a little bit about, you're now the executive director of EARCOM. And again, I just remind people, because sometimes we get through these acronyms pretty quick, but remind people that EARCOM stands for the Immigrant and Refugee Community Organizations of Manitoba. So what is a bit of the history of EARCOM in Winnipeg, Manitoba? I'm so glad you asked. EARCOM started about 30 years ago. It came out of newcomer refugee communities. So we're very proud of our early you know, origins. At that time, the late 70s, early 80s, we had a number of arrivals from Southeast Asia, right? So you know, in the news, they would have said Vietnamese boat people, but you know, folks from Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, escaping terrible, terrible situations. And Canada opened its doors and accepted uh, even more refugees than this than than when the Syrians arrived. Actually, it was it's a really huge number. I think it was over sixty thousand people. It was those 
community-based, grassroots-based, Southeast Asians uh, living in the community, they realized they needed services. They needed services for parents, but in particular for youth, children and youth. So they started uh, recreational services, drop-in services, after-school supports for homework. And they were, you know, there's funding coming down the pipes for housing. And so they engaged with all levels of government and were able to actually build a new uh, apartment building to house newcomers. And our name at that time was actually CIRCOM, the Southeast Asian Refugee Community Organization of Manitoba. And then a few years later into it, IRCOM changed its mandate to be a bit broader. The name changed to IRCOM. And, you know, for 30 years, we've been welcoming newcomers, primarily refugees from all corners of the world. So let's, uh, Shireen, explore a couple of terms just to sort of set the stage. When you look at refugee terms such as refugee, a refugee claimant or asylum seeker or immigrant, Let's start with refugee. What would to, what would a refugee, just for somebody who's listening to the podcast, who is a, who would qualify to be a refugee? Sure. So refugees are distinct from immigrants. So my family came as immigrants. They chose to come to Canada. The point system when my parents came was just being developed. But, you know, now there's a point system. You had to have a certain amount of cash. You had to have certain levels of English certain occupational and educational standards and so on. And you you have time to say goodbye to your family, to prepare them, to have all the goodbye parties and and to go, you know, off in, with your suitcase full of memorabilia and and and, and continue those connections. Uh, refugees, it's a completely different situation. So refugees have to leave their country of origin because of a fear of you know the realities of persecution and war and by definition a refugee is someone who has escaped their country and cannot return for fear of persecution based on their you know their group their social group their identity their profession um, and so on so a totally different scenario many of the families that we work with they left with almost nothing. Sometimes the clothes on their back, they may have been able to grab a, a few pieces of ID, all their memorabilia, their photos, their the, the things that, you know, maintain continuity with generations. They have to leave most of that behind and they l- end up living in refugee settings. So they may live in other countries, in a refugee camp, sometimes just more so integrated into that society or, or trying to. And then the Canadian government as well as many other governments around the world, accept people for resettlement. Primarily, the refugees that come to Canada are part of this resettlement effort, and that is done through the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. So people have made a long journey. They've not chosen this path, but there is, in these cases, no real chance of return. And so they have to, um, you know, they have to move on. And so Canada luckily has this humanitarian stream where we accept people as refugees and welcome them, you know, here in Canada. And people come through other means as well. So the government takes one piece of it, which is really good. They're called government assisted refugees. But we also have this really wonderful system, which many other countries in the world come here to learn about, which is the private sponsorship process. And I'm sure, you know, you may be familiar with this, but a group of five people, you know, five neighbors uh, can can be a sponsorship group. Uh, churches, mosques, um, temples, they can be sponsorship groups. 
So communities come together and they have to provide, you know, at least for the first year, all the necessities of life for a, a sponsored refugee family. It's one of the most rewarding things that, that people can go through. It's, it's challenging and rewarding. And it's a wonderful example of where Canada is really a leader in the world in terms of um, this sponsorship model. The other way that um, there's a few other sort of more technical pathways, but those are the two main ones. And the third one, which we were chatting a, bit, a little earlier, are, are asylum seekers or refugee claimants. So these are folks who have traveled a very difficult journey. You know, some I've met people who've walked thousands of miles. They may have made it on a ship to somewhere in South America, and they have literally worked and done whatever they, they had to do to get across borders through the Americas, you know, through Central America, and then through, you know, the U.S. to make claim at our border. And because Canada signed on to the U.N. Convention on Refugees, the 1951 Convention, we have a legal obligation and we believe a, a humanitarian obligation to accept people's claims once they cross the border. Thank you, Shireen, for, for sort of laying that out, because I'm looking at, you know, what you're overseeing at IRCOM. And of course, part of the definition of IRCOM is the word immigration or immigrant and refugee community. Would you deal with asylum seekers at IRCOM? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. So you're dealing with with all these newcomers that that arrive into into Winnipeg and in fact that you see in at Ircom. Absolutely. So would you say if you were to look at where some of these immigrants or refugees, Shireen, are coming into Winnipeg? Uh, I went to your annual report and I looked at sort of the percentage, and there's there's I mean there's a number of of percentage that are higher than others. And um, one of them, of course, is uh, Somalia. The other one is Syria. And I think Eritrea. Yes, Eritrea. Eritrea. Yeah. So is there, a, is, is that historically, Shireen, being where we have seen a lot of members from the, uh, the immigrant and refugee communities come into to Winnipeg? Or is that changing over time? That's a really good question. It does change over time. Um, but that's been pretty consistent for the last, you know, decade at least. Eritrea, uh, Somalia, South Sudan as well, but increasingly uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. We've seen more families from that area. And, you know, it does change over time. Uh, so the Syrians, for example, before 2015-16, we wouldn't have had Syrians per se. And now we have, we have a, a lot of Syrians since 2015. Also, Afghans, as an example. So IRCOM, 20 years ago, would have seen a, a wave of Afghans uh, living at IRCOM. And then since then, you know, less so in terms of groups of arrivals. But now we have, you know, another wave of Afghans arriving. So we have recently, I think, four or five families who moved into our buildings who are, who are Afghans. So it does follow global trends and the composition of the building does change over time. We just saw it in the in the news the other day that there's going to be another number of people coming from Ukraine. Would those people be involved with IRCOM? So it's very possible. Interestingly, the Ukrainians are coming on a on a temporary visa. Um, it's up to three years. It's a work study or even a just a visitor's visa. But no one knows how long the conflict is going to last. 
you know, and so if, if families want to settle, so we do work with people who, who want to live, who are going to live in Manitoba. So if, if people want to settle and they have sort of complex sort of challenges that we can help them with, and they have to be low income. So, so we are a part of Manitoba housing. So you must have, there's a low income threshold that people must meet in order to move in to, to ERCOM. So if they meet those criteria, absolutely. Okay, so a couple of general questions, Shireen, you know, from your perspective, what has COVID done for the impact on health and economic insecurity for some of the refugees and immigrants that have come to to Winnipeg? Sure, that's a good question. During the pandemic, well, the expression we've been using is, you know, last hired, first fired, as it is, you know, often racialized people, people of color, refugees, you know, tend to be in more marginal, precarious employment to begin with. Plus, they're just starting out their lives in Canada. But of the families that that were employed, uh, a lot lost their jobs. And honestly, two weeks into the pandemic, you know, we could see, I saw, I saw two things. I saw families being very used to this kind of, you know, shocking alteration in our reality, you know, so shops are closing and the streets are empty and, you know, the government is sending messages out, the prime minister is speaking every day. So I would say our families knew exactly what this was. And a lot of them, if they had the means, went to the grocery store and, you know, stocked up and made sure that, you know, no children running in the hallways, which is always a bit of a phenomenon at, at, at Aircom, right? No children running in the hallways. Everyone kept things uh, sort of locked down. So there's that piece that our families were prepared. But on the other hand, you know, within two weeks, we knew families who were running out of food. So becoming food insecure the main barrier that we saw was that everything was being shared in English, maybe English and French. They had no idea about what is COVID and what, what is this disease, you know, and, and, and how do you prevent it? And what, how do I get medical services now? And how do I, you know, what do I do? And they, they didn't know about the CERB, for example, and, and other income support. So that's where we were able to fill the gaps and we actually changed and adapted and created new services to, to help the, the, you know, these kinds of arising needs. So I would say our families, you know, super resilient, they managed the pandemic really well, but it was a tough time and, and you can, you can still see the impacts, you know, today. I asked the question, Shireen, because when we were kind of into, I'll just use the term lockdown, you know, People can take away from that how they see it. I mean, everybody had an impact, but when we were sort of asked by governments to kind of stay home and and really not go out and be social. And I know that there were a couple of schoolyards that had some family, I'll just say young people playing soccer. And, you know, they would be uh, people of color. And I would say potentially, and again, I apologize, this is a very generic general statement, which is not a good thing to do. But I would suggest that perhaps they could be refugees or immigrants. And, you know, the comment was, to your point, if there's a language barrier, they don't know that there's a there's a quote unquote kind of lockdowns, maybe too strong of a word, Shireen, but there's a, a recommendation, a strong recommendation for governments to not socialize and to stay at home rather than go out and be social and be doing things like playing soccer. Those kinds of, you know, observations for passerbys, you rush to judgment and you say, well, you know, kind of quote unquote, what's wrong with those people? Well, there's frankly nothing wrong with them. But to your point, 
there is barriers to understanding and communication. And so you deal with that quite often, I would assume, besides being with a COVID situation. Yes, absolutely. We always provide interpretation with our services because, again, if you come as an immigrant, you you have a certain level of English. Your primary applicant will always have level of English, whereas refugees, um, many would not have, have English yet. So we provide interpreters. And, and when COVID, when the pandemic happened uh, at the beginning of it, we took our whole interpreters pool and we created this new service. We called it the Inter- IFL, Interpreters and First Language Service. So what we did was created a script. So I helped write the first script. And it was, what is COVID? What are the rules now? What are the penalties, you know, and how to keep your family safe kind of thing. Then we trained up the team. So the next day was the training, 20 something languages being spoken. And then we gave them the phone lists and they called one by one by one. I think in the year and a half that we kept this running, we made over 4,000 phone calls to folks both living at Aircom and if anyone needed help in the surrounding community, of course, we called them so they could hear in their own language, you know, accurate information about COVID, about the pandemic, about opportunities, as well as, you know, ways to keep your family safe. It was a complete gap. It was it was just completely missing. And we worked with other partners in the community. Uh, videos were created. We did tons of vaccine awareness. Unfortunately, as you know, there's a ton of misinformation. It, it's not in all languages. So we really tried to be that credible source of information ourselves and many other partners in the sector, just so that people could get vaccinated. And actually, we were super successful. We worked with the province and we worked with health. And they found that while BIPOC peoples had you know, higher rates of COVID infections at the beginning of the pandemic, they had much higher, like higher rates of vaccination as we moved into all that promotion and awareness and engagement. So I think that was really, yeah, we had some real successes in all of that adapted work that we did with communities. So, yeah, but it's been quite the journey, I would say. <laughs> A lot of learning. Yeah, for all of us, you know, Shireen, for all of us, you know, for sure. You talk about families that come to IRCOM, the refugee families. You know, some of the research I've done says that a lot of refugees are women and children. Would you say that you see that at IRCOM or do you see mostly families? And I'm defining families kind of in the nuclear kind of couple of parents with children. Right. And I, I should have defined it like our mandate is to serve families. So if someone comes as a single person, which you actually see, you know, fairly often, especially with claimants crossing the border we do not you know we are that's our mandate is to serve families and that you know we would refer folks to other places if so and people can live with us for three years it's a transitional housing model and in that time they get wraparound holistic services to help them you know integrate so in terms of your question families yes and we you know as long as they have a dependent in the family they would it could be a, a single parent it could be a a single parent and her brother, her adult brother has been able to come with a couple of kids or yeah. So any configuration of family and almost 30% of our buildings are single parents, mainly led by families led by women. Yes. Hmm. Interesting. And again, since you've been involved in this for a long time, is that a trend that you see changing or is that a trend that you've seen that is fairly, I'll just use the term stable that you have seen no change there. 
I think when the Syrians arrived, we saw a lot more coming as, uh, you know, as couples, as families, you know, with both parents. So as I mentioned, about 30% of our families are, uh, you know, single parents, mainly led by women. Uh, that leaves another 70% that are, are not, that have two parents. So, uh, you know, part of it is when, when we talk about the humanitarian stream of, of accepting refugees, uh, Canada has increasingly prioritized folks who, who need more supports, who are in really unsafe situations, um, desperate situations, because those refugee camps are huge, huge places. So Canada prioritizes people who, 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 who are really on the margins, even in those settings, and could really use the supports that we can provide. You know, Aircom is a really good place for that because imagine having neighbors down the hallway, you know, all of them have kids. You can have people sharing babysitting and, and child watch minding. You can learn about, you can learn about people from all over the world at Aircom. There are parts of the model that are so unique. So you can literally meet people from 21 different countries under the same roof. And that teaches you a lot about multiculturalism in Canada, right? For sure. So Shireen, you talk about this holistic wraparound service, just, you know, do a bit of a deep dive into that. What does that look like for a family that arrives uh, at IRCOM? What does that mean to them? A family that arrives at IRCOM will have, you know, a meeting like anyone else would, I guess, about tenancy. So, you you know, to sign the lease and to learn about what it means to, to be at IRCOM. And, and at that point, we do describe it's a three-year stay in this time. Please take advantage of all of these services that are literally at your doorstep. And, and families, of course, are really happy to hear about this. So they move in and then we have a settlement team who will meet with them fairly soon after move in. And have what's called a sort of an intake meeting, a needs assessment, where you just get to meet the family, build some connections, and learn a bit about their story and talk about their goals. And, you know, the big ones are, of course, learn English, have my kids in school or daycare, get a job or get training or, you know, accreditation and so on. Those are usually the big ones. Um, sometimes uh, sponsoring family members is another goal that comes along. And then our team will meet with them periodically in the home. So it's very accessible, right? And <laughs> inevitably there will be tea, cookie, snacks <laughs> served. But, you know, we just meet with the family, build that connection and follow them through the full, you know, three years. By the time you're at two and a half years, it's a pre-departure visit. And by that point, the family, you know, they've had two and a half years of English under their belts. They've participated in community outings where they get to go to the zoo and they get to go to the library and to Cindy Clausen. So they're learning a bit about what you can do with your family in Canada. They might have participated in, uh, we have family, family, family to family volunteer program. So Canadian families are matched with newcomer families and you get to make direct connections with with Canadians who show you the ropes, right, and take you out and also a lot of times connect you with with uh, job tips or, you know, different kinds of, you know, like school, school tips, you know, it's all of these things are, are new to our parents. So in that time, they would also access our asset and capacity building programming. So we work with Seed Winnipeg, a fantastic organization. Um, Cinnabon Credit Union, and of course, the United Way, this asset building programs, um, we're sort of considered the newcomer hub for the city of Winnipeg. 
So we do serve folks who live in the buildings, but also who live in the broader community. And you can participate in saving circles and, 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 you know, save money, get match savings and buy an important asset for your family. If you go to the next level, you can save towards your educational costs for yourself or your children. You know, the money management training, I wish all of us had access to that, right? You know, the, the pitfalls of credit, but the, the, the need for credit, you know, to establish sure. your credit rating, yeah. all of those things, talking to your kids about money. Oh, the best topics. So financial empowerment is a big piece of it. Settlement in general is a big piece. After school programs, if you are at home, you know, the kids can come home, have a quick snack upstairs. They run down to program. So from four to six, we have children's school age programming for children, six to 12. And it's diverse. It's arts and crafts and children's literacy and environmental stuff and greening and you name it. And then from seven till nine, we have youth programming. So, you know, youth don't really want to hang out with school-age siblings. So we have youth programming a little bit later into the evening. Uh, again, a wide variety of activities. The two things that we're very proud about are our sports teams. We have at least three boys and one girls soccer teams who do really, really well in league soccer. And we have also a very strong homework program. So I'm telling you, even on a Friday night, I will drop in on program and there will be kids there getting one-on-one support. It's led by an accredited teacher, Siba. It's a fantastic program and really makes a difference in these kids' lives. Yeah. Wow. Sounds amazing. And and the other piece I think that uh, we need to talk a little bit about is IRCOM has an anniversary coming up. Tell us uh, what anniversary it is and tell us uh, what it's about. Thanks for asking, because we're very excited about our 30th anniversary. So every summer we do have a summer celebration, and it is the apex of, you know, the year for us. We close the place down and we have an outdoor celebration at our first site at Ircom Ellen, 95 Ellen. This year it's a little bit bigger, so we're going to make it our 30th celebration. So we have tours that we're offering from two till four. And and sorry, the whole thing happens on Thursday, June the 30th. So from two to four, we are going to offer tours to anyone. The general public, anybody at all. Yeah, anyone at all. You know, what's it like inside Aircom and where do things happen and what does the tenant suite look like? You know, and look at our gardens that are happening on, on five balconies. You know, we have a whole greening program every summer. So anything and everything. And then the celebration starts with sort of a stage and a program from four till eight. And we'll have carnival games and henna and face painting and all of that fun stuff as well. Our high school grads will receive their scholarships. Those who graduated receive a scholarship from Aircom. And oh, we're also launching a, a really amazing project called 30 Stories of Migration. So we were really lucky to get a grant from the Winnipeg Foundation. I think it's called the Centennial Grant. And we've contracted with an amazing audiovisual sort of specialist, Mandela Quit, and he and his team have been interviewing past tenants, past board members, staff who are now tenants, you know, a whole range of people who've been involved at Aircom over 30 years. And so those stories are going to be shared by social media. And I think it's going to go live on the day of. So we're still planning all of this, but it's going to be super exciting. Well, it's amazing, Shireen. Um, and I, I I want to ask you one sort of last question, but I, I just 
wanted to come back to something because you talk about ERCOM being sort of a three-year transition. So would that mean that for families that, you know, that have a chance to learn English, that have a chance to sort of see the community, you know, uh, opportunities to support, to go out and look for, for jobs. And one of the things I know that gets said time and time again is that when these people come here, they're highly, highly qualified. I think it's a bit frustrating. They can't sort of immediately go to a profession that they've been highly trained in, but such as another conversation that you and I can have. But Shireen, at the end of three years, and maybe before, for those that are fortunate to transition out, are there those from time to time that just really struggle on that third year? To be honest, the number one feedback from tenants upon move out, because we do exit interviews, is uh, they really wish they could stay longer. And we worked with a researcher, Dr. Jill Buckleshuk, who did this, you know, did follow up interviews with tenants who had moved out. So that's a bit beyond our capacity, but with a researcher, it was amazing. And a lot of them said that it was it was hard. It's hard to go out into the community and there's a secondary process of integration that has to happen into your new local neighborhood, new schools, new, you know. So it's, it, that part is a little bit hard. And from that research, you know, it's given us some thought about, about how we connect people when they move out. But for the most part, we've not had maybe minor extensions here and there, but it's, it's not been that bad. We really try to have that conversation from day one onwards. And, and I would say, you know, one of the remarkable statistics, if I could share one, is that before the pandemic, for the three years before the pandemic, we looked at move out statistics. And we found that 12 to 15% of our families were moving into home ownership, wow. which is remarkable. They're new to the country. They come as refugees. Uh, they participate in all the financial empowerment uh, services. Uh, I would say usually the families that manage this are, are you know, already well-educated, highly qualified people. So they save money, they participate in those financial uh, empowerment programs and are able to put down enough money on a mortgage and, and buy a home, which is remarkable. Incredible. Yeah, thanks for sure. That's a great stat. I mean, that really is because I think a lot of people wouldn't have any clue to what percentage that would be. And that's, you're talking about home ownership. Yep. Yeah, no, good for you. That's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. You know, one of the things, uh, obviously a 30th uh, anniversary is celebration, so much positivity that has come through ERCOM and the fact that, uh, you know, you're leading that organization. I wondered if I could just ask you this question for those that would be listening. As the executive director of ERCOM, what do you want the listeners of this podcast to think about on World Refugee Day? I would say that I think we have to hold fast to our identity as Canadians, as people who are humanitarian, you know, as people who are caring of others and what is happening around the world, and perhaps as people who are savvy about what are the root causes of some of those conflicts, you know, that, that, that they're not two separate things, that we're, we're connected and that, you know, we all share a responsibility in receiving refugees. So I would really hope that we would see it as a strength and a pillar of being a Canadian. And I wanted to also maybe make a comment about, at IRCOM, we really have worked at in connecting with Indigenous communities it's a really complex thing that we're navigating, but we see it as really important that when we welcome newcomers and refugees, that we also make sure that they have really 
accurate, good information about the strengths and the worldviews and the histories of Indigenous peoples, about the living, vibrant culture all around us. That's really, really an important piece of it. Just this past weekend, we took two busloads, over 100 newcomer families, parents and children, to the Manitowabi powwow. And that was with the support of Clayton Sandy, knowledge keeper Clayton Sandy. Amazing man. He's an amazing person. We felt really lucky the day that we connected with Clayton. And he took time out after dancing traditional uh, dance. He came and spoke and did a, a teaching circle, you know, with our families, just on the side of this amazing experience, you know. But it, too, was really powerful. They answered every single question they had. So I would just say that welcoming refugees is is at the heart of what it means to be Canadian, and I hope it always stays that way, and that we don't fall prey to sort of the myths and misinformation, and that it's this wonderfully rewarding thing to be a part of, whether you're at the periphery of it, whether you end up sponsoring a family, whether you know neighbors down the road who are originally refugees. I think it's a really wonderful thing. Thank you so much for kind of wrapping this episode up with those comments. I should say that uh, World Refugee Day is is slated for Monday, June 20th. I think it falls on June 20th every every year. So you've given us something great to think about. You've really provided a, a, a wonderful background to, to EARCOM, what it's about, uh, who you are as a, as a wonderful leader, Shireen. And I just want to thank Shireen Neto, who's the executive director of IRCOM, the Immigration and Refugee Community Organizations of Manitoba, for a wonderful conversation. And please know you are greatly, greatly appreciated, you and your team, for what you do in this community. So thank you very, very much. You're very welcome. And thank you so much, Stuart. This has been a really great opportunity, a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Talk soon. Okay. Talk to you soon. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.